Well, as I said, this study is called Living as a Church, and you should have gotten a handout, and you'll see on the back there uh, the, the class schedule. It's going to be 10 classes, and as you look down through this kind of schedule and this listing of the various topics, just a couple things to just logistically, so if you don't know me, I'm Wes Burgess, one of the lay elders here, so most of us have been doing this together for a long time, but uh, also going to be teaching with me is Cliff Hughes in the back and Colby Harper sitting up front. They're going to help me teach through this class, so um, if you've got any questions as we go through things, um, our emails are all there, so if you have any questions later on during the week and you want to ask, you know, what in the world was he talking about, you can email any of us and uh, we'll, we will try to be helpful. And what this class really is, uh, as we think about living at, together as the church, it's a study on just that. What should it look like to be the body of Christ brought together as this particular congregation at UBC? And so we'll look at aspects of living together of the, as the church, um, both that are relevant for when we're gathered, so what we do on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, and then also what we do when we're apart. You know, what does it look like to be the church when we're not gathered? And we'll also look at the things that should be our responsibility corporately and things that are our, our responsibility as individuals. So all of those really make up the aspect of being a church and living together as the church. Uh, and then as you look down through this, this outline, you'll see that the overall theme for living together as a church is unity. So unity is going to be kind of the foundational point of all of these lessons. And, th and that's a term we hear often and in a lot of different contexts. Uh, unity is, is something that is valued typically. But why do you think that it's important for the local church? Why is unity something that we should be concerned about as the local church? Any thoughts? Okay. If we don't have unity, we have chaos or disunity. I think that's right. Yes, Susan. It pleases the Father. Yeah, so we're going to touch on that here. Um, the, the unity, even as you look on your outline, it's, it's actually God's goal for his church that we would be unified. Any other thoughts on why unity is important for the local church? Yeah, Kellen. Yeah, we're called to live distinct from the world. We're called to be salt and light. So in a divided world, I mean, don't we feel that every day? This world is, is divided. So if we're going to be distinct from the world, we need to be unified, particularly unified as the body of Christ. The flesh is selfish, self-centered, naturally divisive, and so unity is supernatural. Unity comes from the Father, and
And so again, if we're distinct as Christians, we will recognize and we'll demonstrate that unity. But yeah, these are all uh, exactly right. And so uh, as we kind of think through this o- over the course of the summer, uh, we want to really focus on unity in the church for these reasons that have, have been noted. And then if we're to kind of maybe find three reasons that we, number one, want, need to talk about this, and number two, um, you know, want to live it out, um, three, three quick reasons here. Number one, God has called Christians to, to be with him forever, but for a time, he has left us in this world gathered into local churches. So, you know, we, we have an eternal hope, but in the meantime, this is God's plan. He's put us together in churches. And, and then number two, he's chosen to use our life together in churches as a primary means of displaying his glory. And we're going to touch on that here in a minute. And then number three, we're sinners. You know, so why do we even have to talk about this? Why do we have to teach on it? It's because we may know the first two reasons that God's left us here in churches and he's used, he uses us to display his glory, but why don't we do it automatically? Because we're sinners. Uh, and so, you know, those first two reasons work real, they work real well together, but the third reason complicates things. So I, I'm sure if you've been in churches uh, for a long time, I'm sure you've experienced a church or a time in a church when uh, things were not unified, where, where division was characteristic of the church. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of jokes about the church, you know, about arguing over the color of the carpet and that sort of thing. So, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons that disunity is what springs out of a gathered body of people. And the, the, the reason for that is because we are sinners. So because we're sinners, as, as Ray mentioned earlier, our natural, our natural bent is towards self-centeredness. Uh, we want to have what we want. We want to kind of focus on ourselves. That's, that's what it means to be a sinner in our natural state. Uh, so we have to recognize that and we have to overcome that. And so, you know, even that, though that's true, the fact remains that God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to display his glory to the world uh, through the imperfect people that he has gathered together in the body. So, what this study will be over the course of the summer is, how is this even possible? How is it possible that fallen sinful people can demonstrate a unity that glorifies God? So that's what we're going to want to try to understand. So to start us off this morning, let's ground ourselves in Scripture. You know, I can stand up here and say that unity is important, but what does God say about it? So turn over to Ephesians. Uh, we're going to look at parts of chapters 2 and chapters 3. And let's just see how God's goal for the church is unity. So Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, we'll look at at the unity that we have in the gospel. And first, we're going to see how we have unity with God. We've been reconciled to God, and then how the outflow of that is that we've been reconciled to one another. So look there in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. uh, And this will just clearly lay out how it is that we have been reconciled to God in unity. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what a glorious truth that is, right? We were dead. We were dead in our sin. Uh, we were dead in every way spiritually. And then God saved us. He called us to, his, uh, to himself by reconciling us to him through the blood of Christ. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was bad. We were, we were all dead spiritually. We were 100% focused on the passions of our flesh, it says, and the desires of our bodies the desires of our minds. And so as a, ra- as a result, it tells us there that we were children of wrath and we were followers of the prince of the power of the air. So in other words, Satan. So that, that was um, who we were followers of. That's who we were children of. And we were focused on ourselves. And then this great truth in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So, you know, that is something that we should meditate on every day, just the understanding when, we, when, it, when it hits us. We were dead, we were children of wrath, and God in his love, God through Christ, reconciled us to himself, uh, even when we weren't seeking him. Uh, so that becomes the foundation of everything that we have as, as believers. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, so that's great. God has reconciled each of us. If we know Christ, if we've repented and put our faith in him, uh, we are reconciled to God. And that first and foremost is great. But the results of being reconciled to God don't stop there. Let's keep reading in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for, the, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's stop there. So, you know, again, um, 
not only has God reconciled us, reconciled us to himself, but he's now reconciled us one to another as well. And that is, just as we were reconciled to God is the heart of the gospel. So the first implication of the gospel is that we're reconciled to one another. And just think about the, the situation that Paul is describing here. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. So here's two groups of people that had absolutely nothing in common except that they hated one another. You know, what bonded them was their loathing of one another. You know, we we've, know the stories from Scripture how Jews would go out of their way not even to go through areas where, where Gentiles were. Uh, and so the gospel then takes these two desperate groups, people that hate each other, and bring them together within, in, within uh, and under the blood of Christ. And it's, as it says there, he, he has made us both one. So he's taken those far away Gentiles, taken those near Jews, and made them one. And it's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know, that's such a clear picture, such a, such a vivid picture. There was a wall of hostility between these groups of people. And Christ on the cross broke that wall down so that these two groups became one. Uh, so think about that for a minute. You know, the, we may think the Jew and the Gentile illustration is not as applicable to us today. But are there any groups today who are known for their hatred of one another? Think about that. Yeah. Okay, the Jews and and Muslims. So, you know, here again, two groups that have nothing but hatred for one another. And, you know, Muslims are, particularly extremist Muslims, let's say, are not shy in saying they're, their goal is the elimination of the Jews from the face of the earth. Yeah, so that's a good example. Any other examples? Political, the political spectrum, right? We're divided. So there's those on the right, conservatives, those on the left, progressives. I mean, you look at what we see in today's world, they hate each other. You know, they, they would say they have nothing in common. That's a good example. Any others that you can think of? Okay, right. Denominations that, uh, those under the banner of Christianity even loathe one another. Yeah, I think these are good examples. And so, think about the implications of the gospel then. Because of Christ's work on the cross, those that uh, are Jews, those that are radical Islam, are brought together as believers in Christ and become one. You know, conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats can be brought together under the blood of Christ and become one. You know, those in whatever groups they might identify with and, and cause them to hate one another, because of the gospel, they have unity. Uh, unity in Christ. And so, uh, again, this is, this is radical. This is supernatural. The world looks at this and says, I don't see how this is possible. I don't know how um, this group and this group, people from those groups can, can fellowship, can love one another. Uh, but the gospel does that. And that's how even we as the church 
become salt and light. We, in our unity, we put on display, the, again, this, this goal of God, this purpose of God, that we would be unified for him. And so we can kind of understand the point of God reconciling sinners to himself. You know, that salvation comes from that. Um, and so then, a little bit harder question, but why then reconciling one to another? I think we've started to, to think about that because it puts God's glory on display. And we see that also in Ephesians. Turn over to chapter 3. Let's jump down to verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mis- the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partic- partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So did you catch that? So there's this mystery. There's this thing, uh, and mystery in Scripture means something that you can't figure out by yourself. It needs to be revealed to you. And so Paul says there's this mystery of the church that Jews and Gentiles would become one in the body of Christ. And he says the reason for this in verse 10 is that through the church, so this mystery of Jews and Gentiles unified under the blood of Christ, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that, you know, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the supernatural beings, angels, demons, those that are outside uh, of this natural world, God's purpose is that they would look at the church and the unity that is found in the gospel among groups who used to hate one another, and God's glory, his wisdom, is put on display. So think about that for a second. This is a big deal, right? So we as the church are a a testimony, a witness to God's wisdom and glory to the supernatural realm. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. Uh, those in the supernatural realm are saying, what does God's glory and wisdom look like? Well, God points to his church, and that's the, the, the testimony that he has for us. So, again, this is pretty important. So the unity that we have, the, the mystery of Jew and Gentile coming together, desperate groups that hate one another coming together, it's important, and, and it then is something that we should take seriously. And so again, that's why we're talking about this this morning. This is why we want to understand what unity is so that we can put that unity on display. And so we want to drive home in this class that this unity is a big deal. You know, church is not just coming on a Sunday morning, showing up, listening to a sermon, and then going about your daily life. Church is unity. It is those who have nothing else in common 
but now have everything in common because we're all under the blood of Christ. So we have been made one. Um, and as you know, if you think about this, this is a huge responsibility as well. And you know, I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? You know, how in the world can we do this? How can we still, as we talked earlier, sinners, how can we put this kind of supernatural unity on display? So um, we want to drive home that if we're not doing that, you know, if here we are as believers in Christ and we're not living in unity as, as the local church, then actually we're living as hypocrites. Uh, so in other words, you know, we have been made one. The reality is, the spiritual reality is that we are unified. So if we're not living unified, then we're living hypocritically, if that makes sense. We're not living as what we truly are. Uh, so we have been made one. So if unity is that important, and I think Scripture tells us that it is, let's spend a few minutes kind of thinking about what, what unity actually is. What is true unity versus a perhaps counterfeit unity? So there's many ways we could get unity wrong. Um, so first, let's, let's think about that, um, counterfeit unity, and then we'll talk about what true unity is after that. So two types of counterfeit unity, and these necessarily aren't all of the types that there may be, but there are two that we want to mention, organizational unity and gospel plus unity. So let's think about these two things. Um, first of all, organizational unity. What might I mean by that? Have you ever heard someone criticize the fact that there's various denominations within the bounds of Christianity? Uh, they say that this is evidence that Christians are divided rather than unified. You know, that Christians have broken up into all of these denominational groups. Wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be more unified is if we were just all one uh, under one organizational structure? So let's think about that. Are, are they right? Is that really uh, a, a picture of disunity? You know, would anything be lost if all who claim the name of Christ were united under one organizational structure? Do you think that we might lose anything if we were all one? I see some heads shaking. Any uh, thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, so, so yeah, we could have this umbrella. We do have this umbrella of Christianity, but not everybody under that umbrella truly adheres to the biblical, the biblical gospel. So if we were all in one group, what would we compromise? You know, what, what, how would we make that work? I think that's right. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more. It, other ways, 
you know, other ways. Let's even narrow it down to those who we do affirm and would agree with on the gospel. Is there anything that we might lose if we, if we were united to all of them under one group? Yeah. Yeah, baptism is is a good example. So, you know, how would we be united, let's say, with Presbyterians, even even faithful biblical Presbyterians, um, if we have such different views on baptism? So how could we fulfill the Great Commission together if we couldn't agree on exactly what it means to go and, and baptize people in, in my name, right? So we can we can obviously agree with those who have a different view on baptism or the Lord's Supper, uh, we can agree with them and, and be unified them on, on a, a level of being able to cooperate with them. But when it comes to the true conviction we have and the ability to disagree on these things in, in, a, in a loving way, you know, that would become a very difficult thing if we had to uh, all come to the same agreement on that. So there's actually some freedom in us being in different denominations where we can we can practice our convictions and they can practice their convictions and we can work together uh, on gospel things but we're not hindered by the differences that we have yeah 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 Paul even mentions things in scripture that we would have different views on you know, to some, one day is, is uh, very important. To others, every day is the same. You know, there's, there's various things like that. And even over on those type of things, we can even uh, be in the same church and just disagree on them, but um, we can still be unified, right? Uh, so, so anyway, you can see where that would be a struggle. And so it's not a bad thing necessarily that we would divide over certain do- uh, doctrinal issues that we would call second-tier issues. They're not the gospel itself, but they're other things. And then, as Colby mentions, even more significantly, is what if we agreed with those, if we were all in one organization, what if we disagreed with those regarding the gospel itself? Um, Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians 11. Let me turn there real quick. You can turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19, Paul says this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul says there is actually a good division, and that is a division for, between those who are genuine and those who are not, divi- not genuine believers. There needs to be a division in that. And so think about this kind of big umbrella of Christianity, uh, and we know that there are some that would call themselves Christians that deny the gospel. You know, as Colby said earlier, you know, <laughs> how could we... Yeah, that defeats the purpose of being a Christian, Amber says. Yeah, that's right. How could we agree with them? How could we be unified under one umbrella where we can't even agree on the, what the gospel is. 
And so there must be a division between those who are faithfully trusting God's word regarding the gospel and salvation and how we're transformed and those who have downplayed that or rejected that or, or, or turned that into something that and reinterpreted it into something that it's not. I mean, history shows us this. So you can look at the church throughout history and trying to be unified under one church when, when that church is drifting from the gospel is not a good thing. You know, the Protestant Reformation, perfect example. Even look at you know, the Church of England throughout dec- decades. They've been just wrestling with how can we be unified when we, even among ourselves, we don't even agree on what the gospel is. Um, and so uh, those things are, are things that they struggle with and as a result, in organizational unity, sometimes that organizational unity can become the point. So we're, we, then we become willing to compromise what is true for unity. And we never want to do that. We, unity is not the first goal. The truth of the gospel and, and how we've been transformed is most important. And that's what we're unified around. And if we, don't, if we, you know, if we get rid of that just so we can all kind of feel good about being unified then that's not true unity. That's not what we're aiming for. So um, that's one way um, that we could be disunified. A second way is a little more subtle and perhaps a little more dangerous for us as believers because of it. And this is what we can call gospel plus unity. So this, this is kind of fleshed out in a book called The Compelling Community, um, which I would highly recommend and what that basically means is that there are some who organize themselves around the gospel plus something else. Uh, so the most obvious example of that is if you get out, drive around from time to time, you may see a cowboy church or you may see a biker church. And so you look and, and there are groups that they have organized themselves around the gospel plus their hobby or their interest or, or their vocation, you know, something in addition to. And so um, you think, well, I didn't know that was a bad thing. And perhaps it's not, you know, in, a, in and of itself a bad thing. But if you think about it, what the, mes- the message that's being sent there is to be a part of this church, you need to be a Christian and a biker. You need to be a Christian and a cowboy or whatever else, you know, it could be anything but um and then how does that display this supernatural unity because the world gets that you know the world gets that we we organize ourselves around our hobbies or our interests you know there's all kinds of clubs there's all kinds of um hobby groups and you know everything else the world understands that Uh, and in in that case those things can start to become the most unifying thing and then the gospel may take a back seat. So those are obvious, um, but is there anything that might fall into that same category for churches that don't have a theme? You know, some churches have a theme. I'm a biker church. But what about the church that doesn't have a theme? Is there any way that we might in, inadvertently um, begin to build up more of a gospel plus type unity? Can you think of any ways that we might do that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that again, that would be a, you know, that's a gospel issue. We, we, right yeah amber's got the gospel she's got that nailed down that's right yeah yeah there there can be there can be divisions on that um yeah sarah what else okay so what if we decided that we were going to start a second service and it was going to be ta- tailored to people who like a more traditional music style or a more contemporary music style. You know, is that not perhaps adding something to the reason that we gather together? Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're a, a group of gospel-believing people, but we're going to make a new group that's a homeschool-focused group. So if you're a homeschooler, you know, you can be in this group, but if you're not, you know, we, we may or na- may not associate with you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Cliff. Yeah. Whatever affinity we find with other people, we tend to flock. We almost have to be aware of that tendency to gather together. Yeah, yeah. Sunday morning's the most segregated time in America. You may have heard that. Yeah. So, whether it's on purpose or not, we have a tendency to to to, to divide ourselves, even along ethnic lines. So, well, what? About, yeah, Anita. Okay, right. Yeah, so. Yes. So the prosperity gospel, again, we would call them, you know, a church that has lost the gospel. They're, they're not genuinely Christian, but that can creep into our, our thought process as well in a soft, prosperity gospel where we start to believe that you know if God loves me he'll prosper me in some way or at least take away my pain yeah and we can we can start to divide over that well what about this what about um, breaking our church into smaller groups that are organized around age stage of life marital status you know what if we do that um, is there, are we adding maybe a, a, a plus to the reason that we gather and the reason that we're unified? You know, we haven't thought about these traditionally as being anything wrong with that. That's just the way we did it. But, again, if you're on the outside looking in, what is supernatural about that? What is supernatural about a lot of young married couples in their 20s gathering um, the world says, yeah, I get that. You know, we do that all the time. So there's nothing wrong with that in, in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with some of these ways that we might divide. And there's nothing wrong with having natural relationships and natural affinities. So I'm going to naturally gravitate to people who, 
who have common interests that I do. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but because what we want to do is put on, the ty- put on display the type of unity we just read about in Ephesians, you know, groups who naturally hate one another then becoming unified, we want to just be mindful of that. We don't want to just fall into the old pattern where I always just slip into the, to the habit of hanging out with the same people that I always hung out with. You know, we want to demonstrate a broader unity than that. So let's think about that, true unity. Um, rather than gospel plus unity, what our aim should be is gospel revealing unity. So we should be putting on display the kind of uh, unity that the world says, I don't understand that at all. What is the reason that two people that have, I don't see any reason they would love one another. Why do they love one another? And this, again, is what we read about in, in Ephesians. When Jew and Gentile are joined together, there's no earthly explanation for it. Um, their relationship simply would not exist if it wasn't for the gospel. And that's what we want to think about um, when we think about unity within the church. You know, if we get together with a group of people, what if God didn't exist? Would that unity, uh, would that group still be together? And what our goal would be is, is for, for relationships and unity that where we would say, no, actually, I guess if God didn't exist, this thing would probably just fall apart. There's no reason that we would be together. You know, if you look and say, uh, well, this is the, the Christian men's golf club. You know, well, what if God didn't exist? Would that still exist? And you say, well, yeah, they still all love golf. So they probably would still get together even if God didn't exist. So, so those are the things that we want to see uh, and, and be intentional about thinking through. So um, do you see then how gospel revealing unity puts gl- God's glory on display where, while other types of unity may, th- may not, you know, don't, don't necessarily not, but may not do that. And again, there's nothing wrong with having those relationships, but Let's think about what true unity is. What is this type of unity that Scripture says? And, and we can define it uh, real quickly in four, four uh, kind of points to, tr- to true biblical univer- unity. One, an action. Number two, its purpose. Number three, its source. And number four, its context. So these are the four kind of subheadings to what true unity is. So first of all, it's action. True unity's action is love. You know, it's as simple as that. Now look what Jesus says in, in Luke 6.32. He says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So when we talk about love that springs out of Christian unity, it's, it's specifically love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that crosses societal boundaries. No, we, we will love those who are not like us uh, if we're demonstrating this type of unity. So love is the action, the purpose then of true unity. Once again, it's God's glory. It's, it's just as simple as that. God puts his gospel on display through this type of unity, unity that exists for no other purpose, um, but it, it's the type we're exhorted in Scripture. The source of unity is the love of Christ. You know, it, Jesus says, or John says in 1 John four nineteen, we loved because he first loved us. So the reason we love one another, that action of unity, is because 
we were first loved by God, by, by Christ. Uh, so the source of our unity should not be guilt. It shouldn't be duty. It shouldn't be self-sufficiency. I can roll up my sleeves and do this on my own. Um, but it is the, the love of Christ, uh, the love from Christ, the love for Christ that we have that will cause us to love those whom he loves. Um, and so that's the source. And then finally, the context. The context of gospel unity is the local church. Uh, so we are to love others. Um, that's clear. But we are specifically called to, to love the church. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we are particularly called to love and be unified with the local church. So that's the context uh, within this unity. So any questions on that? You know, anything that we've kind of touched on so far? Okay, yeah, what is love? You know, that we talk about it, that being important. And, and that's a great question, and we wrestle with that. I, you know, the thing that's helped me the most to understand what love is, is Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So just think about what that verse says about love. So uh, it says that, God demonstrated his love. So love is demonstrated. It's, it's an action. It's not feelings. It's not an emotion. Uh, it says he demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love is not based on the recipient being found worthy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we were unworthy. We, we didn't deserve his love, and that's when he poured his love out on us. And, and that, uh, that action, while we were still sinners, Christ died, or Christ died for us. That shows the sacrificial nature of love. So love is sacrificial action for those who don't necessarily deserve it. Does, it, does that help? Yeah. yeah. None of us deserve it. That's right. Yeah. So, any other questions so far? All right. Well, what's at stake? You know, we talk about unity. You say, yeah, that's, that sounds right. I, I don't disagree with you on that. We want to put God's glory on display. Um, but we need to ask ourselves, what, what's really at stake if we fail to demonstrate this type of gospel revealing unity? And, and I'll just throw that out there. What, what's at stake? If, if we're not unified, if we call ourselves the church, but we, we live outside of the bonds of unity, what's at stake? All right, so yeah, God says, you know, Jesus writes a letter to the seven churches and says, if you don't uh, 
demonstrate my glory to the world. I'm going to take your lampstand away. You're not going to be a church anymore. That's definitely at stake. Yeah, we undercut the message of the gospel if we don't live in unity. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. That's right. Souls are at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Susan. I think that's right. Our prayers are hindered when we're not in agreement. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah, And if you just think about the mission of the church, Brad preached a sermon not too long ago on the mission of the church, and and it boils down to what we call the Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, um, Jesus tells his followers to go baptizing people in his name and teaching them all that he has commanded them so there's these two aspects there of what the church is to do Uh, and we could kind of call that evangelism and discipleship so go and baptize those in his name that that strongly implies uh, that there are those who are have been truly converted by believing the gospel Uh, so the evangelistic side that we're we're called to go and baptize and then secondly uh, we're called to teach everything that he has commanded them and that's the, the discipleship side of it. Those who have been baptized then were to teach those. And both of these things uh, can be at stake, at risk, if we are not unified in our faith. So when you think about that, let's, let's touch on both of those. So our evangelism. How is our evangelism jeopardized if we're not living in unity? <clears throat> you know, if we proclaim a message of radical transformation that is supernatural, but at the same time, we're not living lives that show any evidence of that supernatural transformation. You know, aren't we just undercutting our message? The world looks at us and says, you talk a good talk, but, you know, where's the fruit? You know, there's just nothing to that. And, and that's not to say that God doesn't use imperfect means and convert people uh, by his spirit using imperfect people. But don't we want to demonstrate uh, that we believe and we're living out the, the very thing that we're proclaiming. Uh, and if the gospel, if implications of the gospel is that we're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another, then we need to live that out if our evangelism is, is going to be taken seriously, so to speak. Um, and then discipleship, it's the same thing. Um, if we are trying to disciple one another and yet we're living in division it's not going to work you know once again last passage in ephesians look in chapter 4 i'll read verses 11 through 16 and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, did you catch that? Um, God gives leaders to the church. That's what verses 11 and 12 say. He gives leaders to the church in order to do all the work of the ministry. Is that what it says? The leaders are to do all the work of the ministry? No, it says to equip, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So, you know, there is this unity that's required for the body to be able to equip itself. Uh, And as he says down there at the end in verse 16, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So unity is necessary for the whole body to work together. And we can kind of think of that analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, if the, the parts of the body aren't working together in unison, eh, that's a problem. You know, that doesn't work very well. And to what end? It's for this equipping, right? Uh, verse 13, to mature, to this knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, so if we're to disciple one another, if we're to teach one another everything Christ has commanded us, then that requires this same unity that uh, it requires there. So our, our, go- our discipleship's hindered, our evangelism is hindered if we're not unified. So uh, just last few minutes here, let's, let's think about a little bit of application. Uh, we may agree that we, we should be unified around the gospel alone Um, But what does that look like? How are some things that maybe we could do to build up and foster a gospel-revealing unity within the body? So what do you think? Any any thoughts on what we might do in order to to grow in this area? We got to be in the Word. Yeah. Okay, be here. Yeah, those are, those are, I mean, no doubt, those are extremely important. Yeah, I think so. What else? Anything else? humbly going before the Lord and asking him through his spirit to reveal areas in our lives where where we are disunified, where we are not fostering unity. Yeah, that's good as well. Yeah, yeah. The one another's are given to us in scripture uh, to be carried out within the body, the local church. And we need to take those things seriously, no doubt. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we all would agree to this. And, and I, uh, just some, some other things to think about here. I would encourage all of us to begin to see the entire body 
of UBC as our brothers and sisters, rather than perhaps just the small group of people within the body that we tend to, to run with all the time. So let's broaden our horizons. Realize that my church is not this small group of close friends. It's the entire body of Christ that, that uh, identifies as, as UBC. And I think an excellent way to do that, to help us to do that, is to, is to pray through the membership directory. We say this from time to time. So we've got our membership directory. Um, and this is a very handy tool. And just right inside the first couple of pages, there's a way where we can pray for th through this directory so that you're praying for every member of the body in the course of a month. You know, just pay, pray through a, a page of the directory. Everyone on that page, just spend some time praying for, through them. And, and again, there's some specific things that you can pray for. Uh, and that helps out in realizing that, you know, my church is just not this small group, but it's everybody. And as I'm praying for everybody, you know, the Lord is knitting our hearts together in the gospel. Um, and then uh, beyond that, you know, a good way to do this is come to the Sunday night service. So the focus of our prayer and uh, fellowship with the, in the body, hearing what's going on in the body, it's, it's the whole church on Sunday night. So there's incredible opportunities to understand what's going on in this body. Who is it that I can pray for and, and spend some time doing that? And then a third in, way is to be intentional about connecting with those you don't know well. You know, and this, again, is kind of maybe stepping outside of our comfort zone a little bit. Um, thinking about those who, who are maybe outside your group of close friends um, and we're, we're, we provide time to do this, so I'm finished here. I'm probably over a little bit in, 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 in uh, the time that we had this morning, but between now and the service, take advantage of the time to, to meet somebody new, to begin to foster a relationship with those who you might not otherwise have done so, and same thing um, after the service, same thing on Sunday nights, um, and of course, there's many other ways we can do this as well, but this will take some intentionality. You know, if we're going to be faithful, uh, if we want to truly put on display the unity that's only around the gospel, then we'll need to be in intentional about it. So it's worth it. Yeah, Howard. So, uh, yeah, Howard mentions a book, Side by Side by El Ed Welch, gives some great ways to, to put this into practice as well. So. All right. Well, appreciate everyone being here this morning. Next week, we'll continue, and we'll talk, as you see in your outline there, about diversity. So um, we'll, we'll drill down on, on an aspect of unity next week. So, Colby, would you close us in prayer?